not much to do with Christianity at all, never been to church, and the whole thing really is genuinely brand new to them. And uh, they come along and they check it out, and when they go home and talk to you about it afterwards, they were disappointed. Because it was all very ordinary. I mean, they'd expected maybe it would be out of this world. That you'd, you know, maybe you've been telling them, look, there's a group of people at my church family. They're, in, they're actually in a relationship with the living God of the universe. God who is spirit and supernatural. And so they were expecting that when they came to a group of people in relationship with the living God, maybe they were expecting spectacular things to happen. But church was just so ordinary. Bunch of people sang some songs, read a book, heard a talk, prayed, and went home. It's just so ordinary. Now, if that if that's ever happened to you, that would it's an interesting observation, and uh, which can, to you can be either disturbing or can be actually encouraging, depending on what you actually bring to it. But it does raise the question, I mean, what should it look like in a person's life if they are genuinely, and I mean really in touch with the living God? If you really are in touch with the supernatural power of the universe, God himself, what, should it, what would it look like in your life? How could you tell if you were genuinely in touch? And what about church? What would church look like? What would be the kind of thing you'd expect to see in a church that is genuinely in touch with the, with, the, with the powerful God? I mean, these are important questions. And actually, we're going to be looking into them as we kick off this new series in, in 1 Thessalonians because really the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians bangs on about this particular issue. Now, to see it more carefully, and the whole book of 1 Thessalonians more carefully, I want you to give you a bit of background so you can get a feel for it. The kids' talk has already done some of that for you, which is great. But if you do have your Bibles there and they're open, and I'd love you to have your Bibles and open, come back with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, because here's where we get introduced to the whole city of Thessalonica and what happened there and why Paul is writing to them. Come back to it's, it's verse 1 is where we'll start. Chapter, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. My uh, stand's about full. There we go. Thanks, Mike. All right, Acts chapter 17, verse 1 says that when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonina, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Can, can you get a feel for what Paul was saying when he went into this, into this town? He's gone to this synagogue and he's realised, well, synagogues, you know, it's, it's where, the, where Jewish people meet. It's not a Jewish city, but they've got enough Jews living there to have a synagogue and they've got a synagogue. And he says to them, some of you may have dismissed Jesus as the Messiah because he died. And you're probably thinking, oh, how can, how can God's Messiah die on a cross? But Paul says to them, he had to. He had to die. It was God's very purpose for the Messiah to suffer and die. And maybe he's picking up that stuff we looked at last week about Jesus' baptism, about Jesus being the king and the suffering servant at the same time. He is both. And Paul sought to prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah who had to die 
but rise again as the ruler forever. And what was the outcome? Look at verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And so a church forms in this town. But opposition begins. Verse 5 will tell you how others were jealous and how they rounded up some bad characters and made some trouble. And, and this fledgling church gets a fair load of hostility, so much so that the Apostle Paul's effectively run out of town. The troublemakers actually come to find him, but he's already gone. Escaped before they could get to him. But instead of what they do in verse 6, they go to a, guy's name, a person named Jason... And they find him and some of the other new believers and they are dragged before the city officials. And it said these men have caused trouble all over the world and they've now come to our city and a charge is brought against them. A charge that they are defying Caesar by saying that there is another king. And as Paul is driven out, he goes to the next town. And as you saw in the kids talk, he gets run out of there too. So he goes to the next town. He ends up in a town called Athens, which is great for us Bible readers because there we go, oh, there's a town I know. I know I've heard of Athens. He lands up in Athens. And, uh, and come with me if you've got your Bibles. Now come back to 1 Thessalonians. And this one's on the screen if you can't get there quick enough. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, we read that Paul, it says, So when we could not stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. And so Paul is, is so worried about this small group of Christians that are formed there in Thessalonica that when he's in Athens, he sends Timothy to go and find out who they are. It seems clear if you keep reading in Acts that he moves on from Athens and he goes to a place called Corinth where we get the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians from and it's there where Timothy comes to him and brings good news and Paul is thrilled. And like you saw in the kids talk, he writes a letter, one of the earliest letters of the New Testament. We can date this letter to around 50 to 51 AD. So we're talking around seven, it's about 17 years since Jesus was risen from the grave. And this is an early Christian document. It's 17 years is so close to the events that there is no time here for legends to develop or anything like that. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul thanks God for them and he wants to encourage them. And what he particularly wants them to know is how they can be sure that they've been chosen by God. How they can be sure that they are genuinely and really his people. How they can be absolutely sure that they are children of God. And I think it's so helpful that he starts like this. Because sometimes we can struggle ourselves, can't we? Okay, am I really one of God's people? Am I really chosen by him? And so as Paul encourages them, it's so helpful to encourage us and help us too. And to help them see this, that they are chosen by God, that what Paul does as he starts his letter is he, he starts off by recalling his memories of them and uh, what they were like when they were together. And he says, look at verse 2, chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 now, in the passage we're looking at today. He says... We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God our Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord 
Jesus Christ. See, Paul's memories was that, that when he was with them and they heard the news about Jesus, he could see it just transform their lives. They realised that there was one God. And they realised that this one God could be trusted. You can trust him. And so they had this, this experience of what's called faith in God there, which is, which is trust in God, confidence in him. And the reason you could trust him is that when they heard the gospel message, what they realised, what they came to understand was that this God who is ruler over all things, he actually loves you. He genuinely loves you and loves you with a love that is indescribable because it's all about sending his son into human history to die for you, to take your place, to deal with the great problem of uncleanliness and corruption and death. And It's Jesus, such love to send Jesus. And when they heard this gospel message, it turned their attention to the future. And that certain event that lies in the future, that Jesus will return. And they looked forward to that event and they welcomed it. That's hope. And so Paul remembers their faith, love and hope. For that was the effect that the gospel had on them. And I find it interesting to note that, um, that each of those you know, faith, love and hope, they're kind of inner heart attitudes, aren't they? They're kind of invisible affections. Faith in the Lord Jesus, describing your confidence in him, your trust in him and not in yourself. Your love of God, an invisible affection. Your hope for the future, invisible again. But Paul says that out of these invisible three, these three things emerge. What emerges from that are things that are visible. Because Paul's emphasis here is not just on feelings. It's not just that they heard the gospel news and they had warm feelings. His emphasis is that their faith, love and hope was then actively expressed in their life. You notice that your work, he says, produced by faith. Your labour, prompted by love. Your endurance, inspired by hope. Because if you have genuinely come to trust the true and living God, then you get to work doing his will. And if you recognise that you are loved by God, then you labour. Loving others. And if you recognise that Christ is coming back again and your life is now orientated and looking forward to that day, then all the knocks that come your way, you can endure. Your endurance inspired by hope. Someone has said, and I think it's quite right, this is a great brief description of true Christianity. Work produced by faith. Labour prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. This is evidence of genuine, real Christian experience, evidence that the gospel has touched someone. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, we saw these things in your lives. And we're so thankful for God because it is evidence that God is at work in you, that God's chosen you. And it's at this point, isn't it, where we pause and go, if this is evidence that Paul sees that God's at work in someone's life, do you see this at true of your life? Labour, work, endurance. That have grown out of faith, love and hope. 
they're not spectacular things really, are they? Very ordinary. But powerful evidences that God is at work in people. And the fact that the Apostle Paul points these out as evidence to the Thessalonians that they are chosen by God shows us actually that Paul wants them to know, wants those Thessalonian Christians to know that not just are, he wants them to know not just that they are, not just the truth they are saved, but he wants them to know and feel that they're saved, to have that assurance. And so he doesn't stop just there, he pulls out other evidences. Look at verse 4. He goes on to say, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know he's chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. See, Paul's concern there is we want you to know that you've been chosen by God and how are you meant to know that? And he says, well, here's how you can know it's true because when our gospel came to you, it didn't come simply with words but with power and the Holy Spirit and in deep conviction and now look, first basically, of course the gospel came with words. And of course it did. The word gospel literally means news. You can't hear the news without hearing words. It is a message that needs to be explained with words. You cannot understand actually who Jesus Christ is unless you hear some words about him. Which is why we Christian people are quite big on about hearing and listening. But to those whom God chooses, the words, they They're not just words. It says here they come with power and with the power of the Holy Spirit so that the words bring deep conviction in the hearer. I think it's important to notice that because you see lots of people hear the news of the gospel. And some people say, ah, it's just words. It's all it is. It's hot air. It's words. But for those whom God chooses, they hear the words and they recognise, oh man, that's true. They hear the words and they go, this, this really matters. They hear the words and they recognise that these words don't just come from human beings. They are words that come to us from God. And it builds in them deep conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, has the gospel affected you like that? Where you've heard the news of the gospel and for you it's not just been words, but it's come with such power that it's produced deep convictions within you and turns your life completely around, change the direction and the meaning and the very purpose of why you exist. And Paul would say to the Thessalonians, and he'd say to us, if that's happened to you, you know you've been chosen by God because that is how, you've re- how the gospel has come to you. But the evidence that Paul will then even further point to is the fruit of what these deep convictions bring. Because look at what he goes on to say in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, You, you Thessalonian Christians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You see, not only did they believe the teaching, but they received it in the midst of opposition, a lot of opposition, in spite of severe suffering. In spite of intense opposition, they made a stand for Jesus. And Paul says, that is evidence, not just that you did that, but that you did that with joy. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. 
You see, if you want to see someone who's genuine about their Christian faith, you know, put them in a spot where it costs them something. That's how you'll tell. Put them in a spot where it costs them something. You know, it's so easy to kind of drift along as a what I might call a fair weather Christian, and you'd be known as a Christian where there are kind of where it's easy to. Like you go to a youth group or something. Like I'm, 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 I can be known as a Christian here. It's safe. Come to church on Sunday. I can be known as a Christian here. It's safe. But you put someone in a spot where they're under pressure, and that's where it really emerges if you are really about Jesus, or if you're just on about yourself. Now, I know this is a very poor illustration, so excuse me in advance. And I'm certainly not wishing that this would ever happen to our church family here. Um, it has happened to others. But you know, it's that moment, it's a, it's that moment so a gunman walked into church and had his rifle out and he said, Stand up if you're a Christian. It's a hopeless illustration, right? It's a not, but in that moment, would you stand up? Would you stand up and by God's strength, whatever it costs me, stand with joy side by side with Jesus? I mean, it's a poor illustration because it's, um, it's a very extreme moment and it's a very complex moment. It wouldn't be so straightforward to know what to do. But I just, just, just use that to kind of point out, to kind of go, am I following Jesus because it's convenient in, in the, um, and easy or am I following him because I genuinely am convinced of who he is, and so captured by that, I would stand for him no matter what it cost. That's the Thessalonians. And Paul says that is evidence. You're chosen by God. Another reason it's a bad illustration, isn't it? Because uh, most of us in our life don't have a big moment like that. Actually, standing up for Jesus is, is often much more something that you do day by day, week by week, month by month. Day by day, sacrificing yourself to work and labour and endure all things. But what about you? Would you stand with Jesus no matter what it costs you? Remember Jesus' words where he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this wicked and sinful generation, Jesus says, I'll be ashamed of them. Paul says there is great evidence here to those Thessalonians that they were prepared to stand up and not be ashamed and that they did that with joy. He says that is evidence of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your life. At one level, isn't it? It's pretty ordinary, just standing up under pressure, but it is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. And if, have you seen that kind of evidence in your life? not be that big moment like that like they had maybe you struggle with it at times and you you stumble at moments but is there evidence that you are willing to stand up in face of opposition that if if there is that that is evidence of god's work in your life and thank god for it this is such an important issue for this fledgling church that the apostle paul then drags out even more evidence uh, one of the things he also points out is that their faith in God was public, in Jesus was public, not private. Uh, it's in verse 8 where he talks about the Lord's message ringing out from them. So public was it that it rang out and, and that they actually cared for others about Jesus. That too is also pointed as evidence. But what I want to do is bring you to the last two verses of the chapter. 
which I think are the very key verses of the chapter where Paul kind of sums up all these, all these things in, in, the, in a kind of key verse. Look at what those verses say. Verse, we'll pick it up at verse 9. It says, For they, and it's just been talking about the people in Macedonia and Archaea, uh, for, the, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So the evidence that the Apostle Paul points to here that they were genuinely chosen, he says the evidence is that you turn from idols. That's the evidence. You, you turned from idols. And I want to say that is huge. This really is huge. They heard the news about Jesus, that Jesus was the true king, and God worked in them by his spirit to transform them so that they put their confidence, their trust in Jesus, turning away from putting confidence and trust in idols. I mean, it is the language of repentance, but I want you to notice here that it's negative language. That is, they said no to something. It's negative language. They said, no, this old way of living is wrong. It's not right. I'm going to turn away from it. And the reason I point that, and it's very significant for you to notice this, is because in our culture, we're becoming more and more against negatives. Yes, it is possible to overdo negatives, absolutely. So you need to be careful. But you can't do away with them altogether. And the truth is, you cannot be a genuine Christian without embracing a very huge negative where you say something is wrong. Something is bad. There is something that ought to be done away with. And that negative is you ought to no longer serve idols. They are false. They are fake. They are superstitious. Turn away from them. Now, of course, you shouldn't just be thinking statues in your head at this point, which may well have been back then for the Thessalonians. But more generally, Paul was talking about anything that actually takes the place of God in your life. Anything that takes the place of you serving him, he says you've got to say no to that. It's a massive negative. See, the, the Thessalonian Christians, they didn't just do the positive thing. Like added Jesus into their life on top of everything else. And that's all they did, a positive. It's it's what the Roman culture actually promoted and would encourage. I don't know if you realise this, but when a Roman army conquered another region and they found that that region had their own little gods, the the Romans, they wouldn't dismiss those little gods. They wouldn't critique them. They wouldn't be down on them. What they would do is embrace that local regional God into their pantheon of gods. And we'll just add one more. That's very affirming, very positive. No one gets critiqued. There's no negative. Everyone is loved. And you just build another shrine somewhere else to add to the other shrines that you've got. Nothing negative. No one ever said anyone was wrong. That's impolite and intolerant. And I mean, can you see how popular modern culture is so similar to what it was back then like that. And have you noticed in our world that whenever 
whenever one group says that their way of spirituality is just one more way among many ways, the society loves them. Society applauds. And it's the mood of our age that that some Christians can can kind of, in some ways, get caught up in and, and start to think, well, if Christianity could just be about positives, if Christians would just keep saying a positive message, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is Lord. I know there are other lords, but Jesus is one of them as well. We don't want to be down on anyone. We just want to be positive about anything and... I mean, as long as Christians are, all they are is positive, the society remains happy with them. It doesn't rock the boat. But here, as the Apostle Paul encourages the Thessalonians and speak about them being a model of the Christian life that rang out to the world around them, a model that marked them out as truly chosen by God, it is a life that embraces the negative. And sees that all other religions and all other so-called gods, they're no gods at all. They're false. They're wrong. And we unashamedly call them out as false and we turn away from them. It's a huge, deliberate negative. I want to say it's not a cruel negative. It's a very loving negative. Because it's true that the idols are false. And if you live in denial of, of that truth, then it will kill you forever. It's a very clear gospel message. And so the truth you are called on to believe is actually a healthy, important negative to embrace. And the Thessalonians embraced it. And for those Thessalonians, this really was huge. This was big. And you only notice that if you have some kind of feel for life back then. You know, in that little township of Thessalonica, you see they've got their gods, their idols. They've got their shrines and their temples and they've got their sacrifices to their various gods. And this is not a side thing, not like a hobby in their society. Because in their worldview, the gods were just key to their survival. You know, they were convinced that if we as a town and a city are going to have enough food to eat, then it's not a matter of us going down the coals and going to the freezer aisle and pulling out some frozen whatever it is. No, no, no. It's only going to happen if, if our crops are fertile, if our animals thrive and are fertile too, and if the crops don't grow and the animals don't breed, we're going to die. And so they were very desperate to keep the gods who they thought were in control of fertility happy. And so they offered sacrifices and they offered worship to all these idols. And here they are, here they are, these Thessalonian Christians, they come along and say, oh man, we're not going to play that game anymore. Because those idols, they're false. I mean, how's the township going to react? They're starting to think, man, you guys are going to destroy our town. The gods are going to be angry at us because of you. It's going to be your fault because you Christians won't worship the gods and so hostility comes. You get a feel for how big a thing it was that they turned from idols and said no to idols. Once you notice that, you can see it's no surprise in verse 8 that that, that's where we read that the Lord's message rang out from you 
Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from idols. Man, it's no wonder people were talking about it. Man, did you hear what happened down at Thessalonica town? Man, there's a bunch of people there who have rejected the idols. And, man, it was a heated issue. And conflict came. And people were hostile. And this is the very reason why the Christians suffered. It was a massive, massive step with massive consequences. It was a massive stand to take. Now, some people notice that and begin to think, why don't we suffer like that as much nowadays in our society? Why don't Christians seem to suffer so much here? It's a multifaceted issue. One of the reasons is that here in Australia, we live in a society that does have a Christianised heritage. And that means it is a much softer society towards Christians than the pagan culture was back then in Thessalonica. But I do think, having said that, it is worth noting that I think in the next 15 to 20 years, what will happen is that the community around us will take more notice of the fact that we believe in negatives. They will notice things like, man, is it the case that you believe all other religions are false and won't get you to heaven? Do you really believe that? I mean, who do you think you are? You're so bigoted. You're so divisive. And I think hostility will begin to emerge. You won't have to do anything to make it emerge in your life. You'll just have to be faithful. All you'll have to do is be faithful to what God says. Faithful to the negative. Stand by Jesus and say, yes, yes. That is what Jesus says. He does say, I am the way, the truth and the life. That's positive. No one comes to the Father except through me, the negative. And of course the danger we will face and the danger that some public Christianity has already fallen into is that Christians only want to talk about the, the, the positives and as long as we are like that we won't be persecuted but we would have capitulated to what the genuine authentic gospel is. And so it's important that you understand the positive, and in fact, you will only really understand the positive properly if you embrace the negative. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is the negative that shows you the grandness and the urgency. Friends, don't be tempted to buy the line that you're doing something wrong by, by, by embracing the negatives. Don't be conned into thinking that if only we highlighted more positive things then people would flock to us. We won't build the kingdom like that. But having highlighted a negative in this summary verse, you notice having turned from idols, that's the negative, but then there's the positive, to serve the true and living God. So highlighting says here is the evidence, there's been a shift of allegiance in your life. They were ruled by idols. They are now ruled by the true and living God. They did serve idols. They now serve the true and living God. Of course, in our day and age, rather than being ruled 
and serving idols, the biggest idol we have is often ourselves. That we are in charge of ourselves, ruling ourselves. And this is a verse saying if you are genuinely Christian, genuinely, authentically following God and touched by him, you will turn away from ruling yourself. To have God rule over you. That is the essence of Christianity. And then you turn into this relationship where you serve him. And I know for many people that is a terrifying thing to hear. Because you're hearing my words right now and you're thinking, Hey Peter, are you saying to me that I have to stop being in control of my life? I actually like being in control of my life. I feel safe when I'm in control of my life. Are you telling me that I need to hand control of my life over to someone else to rule? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Absolutely. That is what I'm saying. But here's the deal. The one you are handing it over to to be your Lord is Jesus. The one you choose to serve would be him, Jesus. And he's good and he is loving and he's a true and living God. And there is no one else worthy of being your Lord. You are certainly not worthy of being your own Lord. And it is sin and foolishness to think you could do a better job. Embrace the negative, say no to yourself, enjoy the positive. You can trust Jesus. Now let me finish. How do you know if you're chosen? How do you know if you're saved? How do you know if you're genuinely one of God's people? Well, do you trust in him rather than yourself? Do you have confidence in Jesus and not confidence in yourself? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you have a growing affection of love? Stumbling at times, yes, but affection for God and his people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you have endurance and labor and work and love? Do you see these things at least beginning to form in your life? Have you sought to turn away from false idols and turn away from yourself to serve God? Have you done that? That, that is evidence. The Spirit in your life. It's all very ordinary. It's not weird. It's not particularly mystical. But faith, hope, love, work, labour, endurance. Turning from, turning to, looking forward to, waiting, serving. These are the evidences Paul talks to. And if you're among us this morning and you're not actually sure that you're in touch with God, then don't leave this morning. Without talking to someone about it, talk to me, talk to someone who's at the front, find out. If you are someone, though, who has some confidence that these evidences are there in your life, then press on in them and give thanks to God for them and pray for his strength to keep enduring. How about I do that now? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we're not left following the idols of our own lives that you sent your son, that we might turn and serve and wait. And we pray we do that well to your honour.